This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Saita. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Emilia Glaser and Yulia Ilchuk about Halina Kruk's book, A Crush Course in Molotov Cocktails, published by Aerosmith this spring. Emilia Glaser translates primarily from Yiddish, Ukrainian, and Russian. She's professor of literature at UC San Diego, where she holds the chair of Judaic Studies. She's the author of Jews and Ukrainians in Russia's Literary Borderlands and Songs in Dark Times, Yiddish Poetry of Struggle from Scottsboro to Palestine. She's the editor of Stories of Khmelnytsky, Literary Legacies of the 1648 Ukrainian Cossack Uprising and with Stephen Lee, Commentary in Aesthetics. She's currently writing a book about contemporary Ukrainian poetry. Yulia Ilchuk is assistant professor of Slavic literature and culture at Stanford University. She's the author of an award-winning book, Nikolai Gogol's Hybrid Performance, published at University of Toronto Press in 2021, and a translator of contemporary Ukrainian poetry. Yulia Ilchuk's most recent book project, The Vanished, Memory, Temporality, Identity in Post-Euromaidan Ukraine, revisits collective memory and trauma, post-memory, remembrance, memorials, and reconciliation in Ukraine. Hello, Emilia and Yulia, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So, Helena Kruk is one of the most prominent poets and writers in Ukraine uh, today. She's the author of five books of poetry, a collection of short stories, and four children's books. She also received multiple awards for her writing, including the Privitanya, Zhitya, and Ranuslov Prizes in 1997, the Step-by-Step Prize for Children's Books in 2003, the Book Forum Best Book Award in 2021, the Smallest Kid Poetry Award, the Bogdan Igor Antonovich Prize Award, the Granoslov Award, and the Kovalev Foundation Prize for Prose in 2022. Would you briefly talk about how you started working with Alina Kruk? Uh, it was quite an accident because we uh, collaborated with Emilia on translating um, other well-known uh, writers, uh, uh, Sri Jadan and uh, 
Paris, Khersonsky. Um, and then uh, with the beginning of the war, we discovered uh, that Halina's uh, uh, poetry, and especially uh, I was surprised that uh, she's a literary writer because I've known her only as a scholar of medieval uh, Baroque literature. Uh, so that was quite a discovery for me uh, to see her uh, moving from syllabotonic, uh, traditional uh, Ukrainian verse, very beautiful, intimate, uh, lyrical tradition, uh, to more uh, very liber and contemporary um, and very emotional style of writing in the recent uh, couple of years. And I would just add that Yulia and I, we'd been translating together for a few years when we um, started to translate Halina's work. And um, we started translating her work, I think, around 2021. Mm -hmm. So it was before the full-scale invasion, but we were already looking at some of the work that she was writing about the ongoing war. Uh, so we came to her work about war, um, but also realized that she had this beautiful poetry that she'd been writing since the 90s when she was still you know, a, a late teenager in her early 20s. So she really has this side career as a, a very accomplished poet in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So would you comment on the title of the book, A Crush Course in Molotov Cocktails? Uh, this is quite a provocative title. It's a line from one of the poems. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the poem uh, called No War that we titled No War. It's about standing. It's about a Russian poet who's standing holding a a no war sign. And then the poem goes on to, uh, to talk about um, what it means to actually be in Ukraine after the full scale invasion. She wrote it very, very shortly after the invasion in 2022. And she talks about people who have maybe taken a crash, cor crash course in Molotov cocktails. Uh, we are one of our, uh, our designer actually from Aerosmith press was just flipping through the book and came up with the idea of the title. And, uh, and we all really liked it because of how provocative it was. Helena was a little bit worried because she said, won't this trigger algorithms that might think that it's uh, about weapons? And I was like, oh, no, nothing to worry about. Of course, it did. Very briefly, she was right. It triggered an algorithm that, that kept it off of Amazon for about a week. But that's all been sorted out. Is and that right? Up and it's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. There are other books with Molotov cocktails in the title that are about poetry oh. and so forth. So it's not a, you know, it's not crazy to, um, to use a, a title that might involve weapons. Oh, that that's, that's so weapons. interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about that. <laughs> I want to just add that the original line says that uh, all family participates in making deadly cocktails. And we kind of unpacked what it means mm -hmm. uh, because she uses a euphemism uh, in the original poem. Shall we read the poem, actually? No war. You're standing with a no war sign as if to redeem the inevitable. This war can't be stopped like bright arterial blood from an open wound. It flows till it kills. It enters our cities with the armed men, seeps into our courtyards with the reconnaissance units, like the deadly mercury beads you can't pick up. You can't fix this except to find and neutralize it. These civilian managers, clerks, IT guys, and students, life didn't prepare them for street fights, but the war did. On the front line, a landscape so familiar it hurts, in a hurry. At first, they only recruit experienced combat fighters, to the defense units. After that, gamers who played Dune and Fallout and had a crash course in Molotov cocktails from a bartender at the local club while the kids slept. The kids were crying. The kids were being born into a world temporarily unfit for all this. 
Out on the playground, they're assembling Czech hedgehogs. And nuclear families mix deadly drinks. Whole families finally enjoying a conversation and a collective project. War shortens the distance from person to person, from birth to death, from what we never wished for to what it turned out we were capable of. Mom, pick up the phone. A woman's been pleading for two hours in the apartment building basement. Stubborn and dense, she won't stop believing in a miracle, but her mother is out of cell phone range in the suburbs where the prefab collapsed like cheap Legos from the massive strikes where just yesterday broadcast towers stopped connecting people, where the world got blown up into pre- and post-war along the uneven folds of the no-war sign, which you'll toss in the nearest trash can on your way home from the protest, Russian poet. War kills with the hands of the indifferent and even the hands of idle sympathizers. So there's both Molotov cocktails and deadly drinks in mm-hmm. here. It's um, kind of a, a landscape portrait of what it means to mobilize for war and how little um, even well-meaning protesters outside the country can, can see that and feel that. Yulia, would you like to read a Ukrainian version of this poem? Sure. Indulgence to indulgence 
So we wrote back and forth a little bit with Helena Kruk and ended up coming up with this idea of redemption, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of redeeming mm-hmm. the inevitable. Um, but others have also translated this, and there's a wonderful translation um, uh, that uses atonement as mm-hmm. well, not mm-hmm. not ours, but it's a, it's also a very good one. Mm-hmm. So. And this is one of the poems that was written after the full-scale invasion in 2022. Uh, but the book also includes um, <clears throat> those poems that were written right after 2014. And Helena Krug, during her international talks in particular, always specifies that the war began not in 2022, but in 2014. So how's collection constructed? And how did you collect and arrange the poems? And if Helena Krug also somehow... Um, I don't know, made some contribution <laughs> to how the book should appear to um, Anglophone audiences. About a year ago, when we contacted Helena, she already compiled a collected volume that she called Book War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, of course, you know, we could not play on this verbal pun. It's untranslatable. Book War means an ABC book. Uh, but in her rendering, uh, the second half, War became war, so it's like a book of war. Mm-hmm. And she already included uh, poems from different uh, time periods of, of the war, uh, both more recent and from 2014. And I feel like we've taken this file very seriously, very uh, doing very little changes in the also in the order in which she presented these poems. We we did change a few things though. I mean, mostly we added because she's been very prolific over the last year. So we we go in reverse chronology in this particular volume, and we, we add a little bit of the early stuff. We have about two poems before the beginning of the Donbass War, uh, one, I think, from 2012 and one from 2013. Mm-hmm. And um, so we added a little bit of earlier stuff that's come out in other books, but then we also added... Uh, poems that she had written after conceptualizing this Ukrainian language book of war poems. And, you know, we had a certain point, us called Melnichuk, who edits uh, at uh, Aerosmith, had to say, okay, you're done. You're done. No more poems beyond 2022. We have to get this out. Uh, So we have, I think, our our last poem is from December 2022 that Mm -hmm. we managed to translate and slip in. And many of these are poems that she published on Facebook that have not come out in uh, a, in book form yet in the Ukrainian original, except, of course, in this one, which is bilingual. Uh, but um, it's very much a record of of her experience of war and her heightening experience of war, since we have things from, you know, 2014 uh, to, uh, to the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, many poets, in fact, um, comment on their postings of poems on Facebook and and then somehow compiling these poems into uh, book collections which are subsequently uh, published as literary scholars. Would you uh, somehow share your ideas about how this Facebook poem commentary somehow contributes to book production in the future. So do you have your kind of theoretical approach to this kind of writing, particularly during the wartime? I mean, I've been studying Facebook poetry in Ukraine since about 2019. I started to notice that um, there was something really interesting that was happening in the comment threads on Facebook. And so I started to kind mm-hmm. of do a, make a, create a quantitative study that used, um, an archive of poems and that allowed me to search and to sort of look at the changing themes um, in a kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call it big data, but medium data way. 
um, what I think is really, really useful about Facebook, and it, this is just the design of the platform, mm-hmm. is that we have a record not only of the poems when they are written, but a record of the way that people respond to them. Sometimes in real time, we can sometimes even see poets' responses to people's translations that happen right in the comment thread. And for the literary scholar, this is gold. I mean, this is so interesting and so useful for people studying contemporary writing because it gives us a large set of things to study, even when it's just produced in a, in a kind of short term and even when it's not published yet formally. Uh, I think, you know, I think that the work that's coming out in books is fantastic. And I think it's been coming out, you know, at a at an amazing rate. But uh, there's there's this opportunity right now to kind of think about the conversation that people are a part of. Mm-hmm. And Facebook has been really it's just been really huge uh, for Ukrainians, mm-hmm. um, in part, obviously, because uh, it was declared a terrorist organization by the Kremlin. So that makes it a more appealing platform than it would have otherwise been as an American corporate platform. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yulia. I also want to add that uh, with the uh, invention of ChatGPT, uh, all these poems published on social media contribute to the feed uh, of uh, um, poetic uh, style, and uh, you know it's kind of corpora of its own. I remember recently Helena Kruk uh, herself tried to generate a poem in her own style, and this was pretty readable, right? So <laughs> you could. <laughs> So what are the uh, poetic nuances of Halina Kruk's poetry that you had to somehow decode for translation to deliver what was presented in Ukrainian? And um, would you read one of those poems that you would like to comment on in terms of translation specificities as well as in terms of some, I don't know, some um, poetic characteristics which are quite um, prominent for Halina Kruk's style? I mean, I'll, I'll say that it's for being in a translation partnership with Yulia is wonderful for for me as a translator and also as a scholar of poetry, because we really kind of have a little like workshop going where we will sit down and we will talk about these poems very closely and you know, and read them at the level of, of syntax and um, the choices that they make and maybe even weird errors that creep in sometimes and try to sort out what to do with, with poems. And uh, what are some of the harder ones that we've confronted, Yulia, that you've... That you've... Mama, Mama Yama Ya. Mama Yama Ya. We, shall, shall we read Mama Yama Ya? This one might be worth reading in Ukrainian first to give a sense of the tone and the sound, and then we can talk about what was difficult. Uh, so just wanna um, give kind of a preview of uh, Galina's recent changes in her poetics and versification that uh, she insists that there is some kind of inner logic in how she constructs the poem, but it's not subordinate to any formal features of the verse, rhyme or even a rhythm. Um, and very often she uses verbal puns um, that's very difficult to translate in, into any uh, uh, target language. Uh, and in this particular poem that we're about to read, uh, she plays with this, again, the very primitive uh, first uh, uh, rhymes that uh, children read in ABC books, like Mama, Mela, Ramu, that based on repetition of uh, syllables. So she uses the same principle uh, by repeating syllables. And uh, as uh, many of her poems, th- this one also has a ring 
composition. So it begins and ends uh, with the same uh, line or even idea or line, uh, maybe slightly altered. Julia, do you want to read this in, in the Ukrainian okay. first, just because this one has such a strong rhythm? Mama, yama, ya, de moje imya, rama vidvikna, krestovina na, boh na vilitý šov, dušu pidibra, chirurgičný šov, bolu avtakla, tila movčazny, vyhololi dým, neznachodit v ním prichostku ľubov. Mama, yama, jak bíhte na vzduhín, plakate na vzryt, padate na vznak. Боже, я прийму всі твої шляхи, але їх не руш, але їх залиш. Тих усіх малих, що навчилися лише кілька перших слів з материних уст, з материних рук. Мама, яма, сам, як йому тепер? Мама, яма, як? Мама, I'm a pit. Where's my name? Window frame, crossbeam holding it. God flew out the wound. Picking up the soul, sutures, surgical, autoclave for pain, bodies, silent frame, house grown cold, love can't find in it, shelter or accord, mama, how a pit, run till you catch up, cry aloud, sob, fallen on your back, God, I accept all your paths, but they can't be moved, but they must be left, all the little ones, only barely learned, their first words, from a mother's tongue, from a mother's hand, mama, pit, self, how is he now, mama, pit, how? So for this one, um, obviously there's there's a very strong rhythm. And, you know, we, you, you might think of uh, translation as, translators have to rely on this concept of what's dominant in the original poem. That's a concept that Roman Jakobson wrote about and, uh, you know, the dominant is the thing that makes the poem the poem, and, and you have to figure out what is going to be dominant for your readers. So you couldn't translate this poem without trying to get at least some of the rhythm, maybe not all of the rhyme. Um, we we found, I mean, this is, I have a very strong feeling about this as someone coming from an English language background that you can't overdo rhyme in English or your readers won't trust you. And so we tried to hint at the rhyme without making it like, too heavy-handed. Um, but we also, one of the other things that we had to think about was, as Julia mentioned, double meanings, but also word order is much looser in the Ukrainian than it is in English. So a line like mama yama ya or mama yama yak, you, that could be mama, I'm a pit, mama pit, I, mama. There are different ways of understanding the word order in English. So because of her repetition, we were able to play a little bit with suggesting different possibilities for those lines. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Yulia, would you like to add anything? Um, so very uh, often her poems are um, uh, deceptively simple, uh, uh, like uh, this one based on the repetition of uh, syllables. Um, but uh, it uh, just uh, uh, reveals the very deep pain uh, of uh, basically dismemberment, right? And then collecting the cell from from scratch. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this poem just beautifully captures this uh, movement from uh, these fragments of identity and body parts uh, into a new kind of wounded uh, uh, new one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in the very words. Yeah, sorry, go on. Mm-hmm. 
I was she, she plays with words a lot, and I would I would say that even maybe even a little more in some of her earlier work um, because she's sort of forgoing some of her wordplay in the current work to really get the message across. But it's it's really beautiful translating with Yulia because there are things that I just like as a non-native speaker of Ukrainian, I'm not going to catch. So there's another poem that we translated a much earlier earlier poem where she has a line, and I was like, mm, I am the last letter. And, and Yulia's like, no, Ya is the last letter in the alphabet. <laughs> like, of course. But, you know, doing doing this uh, with two heads is very is very useful, especially when one of the heads is, is thinking in the language um, in a much more immersed way than I'm able to. Uh, but she she plays with this a lot. And in this other poem that I'm referencing now, we even decided to, um, to have fun with it. And the fact that it is facing pages, Ukrainian and English, meant that we were able to... Um, maybe be a little bit looser and, and more playful with some of our translations. So this one, we decided to bring Cyrillic into our translation and, you know, just write, I am Yah mm-hmm. in the Cyrillic uh, last letter of the alphabet and so forth. So that, that, you know, people will get it. And if they don't get it, they can go look it up. <laughs> you can use Google Translate. There's all sorts of tools to, to help. Uh, Yulia, do you have a poem that you would like to share? Shall I read this in English first, and then Yulia, you can do it in the original? So history of the turn of the century, fatal and inconsistent as Nep, she aims her bangs at you. The poet's muscles are slack, like a millstone in 33. But don't give her a word, or she'll take them all. You've tried not to let her dazzle you. You've seen these tricks, won't fall for them. Who is she anyway? Flirt, Chica agent, bitch. She knows how to hit you where it hurts. That what will kill you will seduce you first, audacious ubermensch. How long will you stay standing over the hollowed trench after a hasty gunshot over a bullet-marked body where God will never die? Історія початку століття. Фатальна і непослідовна. Як політика небу виставила проти себе тебе своє бойове каре. В холосту, наче жорна у 33-м, ходять жовна поета. Але жодного слова не давай їй, вона і так усе забере. Ти пробував навестися на всі штучки дрючки. Ти бачив різні колінця, цими тебе не візьмеш. Бо хто вона, вертихвістка чи кістка сучка, знає, куди тебе бити, щоб найбільше боліла. А вже ж, а як на початку манила все те, що потім убила, зухвалості над людина, як довго встоїш на двох, над вивершеним окопом, над запострілом скороспіли. I was attracted to this poem uh, because of Sergei Shadan's 2001, The History of Ukrainian Telepatonic, and I found uh, parallels uh, in developing this line of uh, poetic tradition that was interrupted during the 1930s, uh, the period that uh, now known in history as the Garotid Renaissance, um, when uh, Ukrainian modernist poets and artists were arrested and assassinated uh, in Sandarmov mostly. Um, and uh, contemporary generation of poets uh, picking up this tradition and filling in, in, in the gaps. Uh, so very much they remain modernist in their uh, understanding of poetry's impact on larger society and in, in the culture. Emilia, would you like to 
comment on this poem? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that we were in touch with with Halia when we were first translating this. Um, actually, we'd already translated it, but we were getting ready to publish it. And she um, called our attention to things that we hadn't even kind of thought about. This uh, in the second line, right, this she aims her bangs at you is there's both the, you know, she aims her ammunition at you and she, and it's the same word for like uh, part of the haircut, right? The front of the front of uh, um, a person's hair, the fringe. And uh, it, there was a kind of fortuitous uh, double meaning in English mm-hmm. with the word bang as well. Um, and so she's, you know, she's, she's personifying this idea of, um, of time and of history as a kind of femme fatale who is dangerous. So, uh, in terms of topics, uh, what are the major topics in this collection, and how are they developed? So, there are a lot of biblical allusions, and there are topics of faith, for instance, as well as dealing with a struggle of losing this faith in the face of witnessed atrocities afflicted by um, Russia on uh, Ukraine. I would uh, uh, not thematize uh, the poems because her range of uh topics and material are very wide, but I would analyze it in terms of the function of uh, poems that uh, now is, it's not time of uh, metaphors and beautiful poetry, it's time of praying, mm-hmm. uh, commemorating, uh, lamenting uh, the dead, so I feel like this poems function as the collective rituals mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in time of war, either consoling the wounded ones or again commemorating the dead ones. Uh, so poetry becomes like in prehistoric, pre-Christian times, a form of existence of people during the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very uh, accurate that the range of topics which we can somehow identify in this poems is very, very wide. And um, as you put it very uh, nicely, that it's probably more productive to think about these poems in terms of functions rather than in terms of individual topics. Emilia? She's very capacious. I mean, she's incredibly, she's an incredibly well-read person, an incredibly educated and cultured person, and she draws poems from everywhere. Obviously, you know, she's also a scholar of Baroque literature, Mm -hmm. and you see that everywhere. She talks about uh, you know, she uses these historical references to Ukraine, but also to to the classics outside Ukraine. Um, there's also a lot of science that shows up. She has a, a certain scientific sensibility, um, geological formations of parts of Ukraine, anthracite and so forth will kind of appear. Uh, physics, she's got a kind of, phys- you know, she's interested in physics as something that can pattern mm-hmm. our understanding of existence points in time. She'll have these kind of mathematical constructs that will come into some of her poems. So each one, you know, she'll have this kind of seed of an idea that seems to come out. And, um, you know, it's very much she's, you know, she's talked about the um, experience of losing electricity during much of 2022 and how that changed the way that she thought about her writing process. She was actually writing literally in the dark with a candle some of the time. And in fact, at one point wrote to me, we were sort of texting about about things. And she said, it's sort of I think it's been good in certain ways for my poems because it slows me down and it Mm -hmm. helps me think about the history of humans writing by candlelight um, as hard as this is. Um, So she's, she's found, uh, she's found metaphors even in an incredibly dark period. Mm -hmm. And uh, you commented on a couple of poems during our conversation. Did you have a chance to share them with your students, for instance, or with other audiences? And what kind of response did these poems receive? 
We shared some with Yulia's students just a couple of weeks ago. Do you want to talk about your students' responses to some of them? My students actually uh, posted their discussions, uh, discussion comments uh, after our reading. Uh, I'm just trying to uh, find and uh, summarize some of them. I mean, they were all very impressed uh, with uh, depth of uh, the poems mm -hmm. um, and how topical they are. Uh, one second, maybe I'll find I'll be sharing them with my students in a couple of weeks, but I, I'll say my, my students have read others' poems. Um, we brought in um, Olga uh, Lipshin, who has translated uh, Khrusonska, and, um, and they're very moved by the contemporary poetry. They're very interested in the fact of poetry becoming incredibly meaningful for a group of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are impressed with juxtaposition of peaceful imagery of flowers and rainbows against the violent imagery of the war. Uh, it was very difficult to process this, mm -hmm. and also they were, uh, for the first time, they were reading um, through the poetry the, about the difficult realities of displacement. Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean to be displaced internally and externally? So they actually read these poems as a commentary uh, and kind of reporting uh, on the devastating impact of the war. Would you say that these poems or any other uh, poems by other poets uh, could be could be some uh, some sort of a window into Ukrainian culture with hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, cultural and historical developments, or students just uh, able to somehow uh, sympathize more probably with the current uh, struggles and with the, uh, and to probably better understand those crimes which are being committed by Russia and Ukraine right now, or it, we can we can still use these poems to somehow push students to be interested in Ukrainian culture and as well as in the previous centuries and other events. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. I mean, I, I think exactly what you're saying is um, it, what you're, what you're suggesting in your question is that um, these poems might do both. <laughs> and I'm seeing that, that we simultaneously have poems that are very much of our moment. They're poems that are posted to a social media site that Americans also mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. post things to. And, um, and so students can identify with that. But when you start to read the poetry of a culture, especially a culture going through war, you're also very aware of your um, your limits of understanding. You know, we as Americans are not going through the same thing. And I think that these poets make that very clear. And then when they delve deep into the history of Ukrainian culture, there's a demand that the reader try to go with them. They may not get to every place, but Paulina writes about Stus, a wonderful poet of the 60s. Uh, she writes about the history of uh, Ukrainian Christians. She writes about the geography of Ukraine. She writes, of course, as you've just heard, about the Holodomor and about Nep and the, the Stalin years. And I think that reading enough of this poetry, and hopefully this book would do this for people, uh, will give people a sense of where to go next in trying to learn about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like all uh, our writers and artists uh, now feel themselves implicated in history and in uh, many of their works they print uh, the repressed uh, pages uh, of mm -hmm. Ukrainian history because every single family had some kind of experience with Bolshevism and terror. Uh, so it became now part of the reality because of the similarity of the experiences, uh, of traumatic experiences they um, undergo. Uh, so they 
through the contemporary works, they bring uh, to the readers the forgotten pages of history. Uh, so in Helena Krukot's uh, uh, Great Terror, right, and Holodomor, but in other cases, it could be also Holocaust and uh, other uh, more recent, uh, like Vestus, right, uh, uh, repression of the political and creative uh, descent. Mm-hmm. And um, Helena Krug's poetry is looking for a language to articulate a number of traumatic experiences, as we previously pointed out, and one of them is finding an ability to articulate one's feelings um, under the pressure of ongoing um, uh, ongoing fighting and ongoing uh, witnessing of uh, crimes that Russia commits against Ukraine. So what language are we looking for? And uh, Yulia, as you um, write your current book right now. One of the parts of uh, uh, this book is about reconciliation, and uh, probably you can somehow comment on uh, this topic in contemporary Ukraine. But I'm also wondering whether we can talk about this language of not just reconciliation, but uh, some sort of um, resistance, right? Resistance, resilience, and I'm not sure what part will be occupied by uh, victimization in this language? I don't know. I don't believe that uh, language shapes uh, reality, mm-hmm. especially at this moment. Um, just uh, poetry uh, is the most immediate uh, medium to communicate uh, trauma and mm-hmm. uh, unite uh, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully uh, the Ukrainian society will recover from this uh, traumatic experience. Uh, when I apply forgetting and reconciliation, of course, I talk about the previous traumas, mm-hmm. World War II, Holocaust, Holodomor, uh, but it's, this is not the time to forget. This is time to record, to testify, to collect witnesses for the future trials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I mean, I can add to that by saying that there's another process that Ukraine is in the midst. I mean, it, it's it's defending itself against a war that's threatening its annihilation. I mean, Ukrainians mm-hmm. all, it's, it's painfully clear that everyone needs to stop everything and do that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this is a war of independence in the same way that America experienced a war of independence over 200 years ago. And I, and I think in that process, Ukraine is re-envisioning what it means to be Ukrainian. This idea that, you know, the, and, and I think it, it, the accusation that Ukrainians are somehow ethno-nationalists, which has come from the, the part of the Kremlin, has mobilized many on the vanguard of Ukrainian culture to prove that wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that's involved a process of thinking not just about specifically ethno, kind of ethnic Ukrainian trauma, but the traumas of the various peoples living in Ukraine. And that's, that's been the case for, you know, over a decade, but it, it's, it's, um, it's intensified since the period of the, of the Maidan and since uh, the beginning of the Donbass War, that there's been a lot more general discussion of the deportation of the Tatars, of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. of, um, you know, various, of the, the struggles of various groups in Ukraine. And my hope is that those conversations will continue and that it won't become narrowed to a, an ethno-national particularism, which is, which is a risk, of course, of any war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Ukrainians valiantly have resisted that. Thank you. Thank you. And um, 
I always uh, think about uh, these books in terms of how they could be integrated into literature courses. And as we know, unfortunately, we don't have that many literature courses on Ukrainian literature in the States, unfortunately, today. But hopefully we will <laughs> see some 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 increase of this uh, course. We are, we are each teaching one right now. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, well would, you, would you share your experience of teaching this, these courses then and how, for instance, this collection could be integrated in your uh, future semesters of teaching this course. I'm teaching a two-week course on uh, Ukrainian culture. It's called uh, Ukraine at the Crossroads. Mm -hmm. and we discuss this in-betweenness and hybridity of Ukrainian identity uh, through different texts and epochs, starting with the tale of bygone years and ending with uh, Grey Bees by Andrei Kurkov. So I just like to bring contemporary writers. Uh, we are lucky to have Kurkov on campus and uh, Amelia lives in California. So students are um, very interested in contemporary processes uh, in society and in culture. And uh, for them, uh, uh, my Stanford students come from mostly from engineering uh, science background. So for them, taking a literature course, it's just, you know, to discover who they are, to share their ideas, uh, because our courses are relatively small. I have a group of 12 students compared to, for example, courses on uh, math or physics where they barely know their peer students. Uh, uh, so I feel like uh, we can uh, definitely... Uh, use more contemporary lit literature, uh, even in, in translation, uh, and uh, develop this habit uh, reading the literature and translation that, um, unlike in Europe, is not uh, very popular here. Yeah, my course is uh, similar, but it's maybe a little bit uh, broader historically. It's called The Literatures of Ukraine, mm -hmm. and it starts with Kotlerevsky and ends with my last week, I'll be doing contemporary poetry. Um, so not the entire book, but I'll be doing some selected poems from this as well as some others. Mm -hmm. And we cover uh, literatures written in different languages in Ukraine from, you know, Sholem Aleichem to Bruno Schultz to obviously Gogol and, uh, and Babil and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, it's a course that also shows the hybridity of the, of the space of Ukraine. And I do think that the book works well as a, it, it reads as a, a clear statement, even though it's a book of around 60 poems. It, um, you know, it could be read as a kind of experience of war in Ukraine. Um, I also could imagine this being used in a course that, uh, that introduced students to the study of Ukrainian in Ukrainian literature in Ukrainian because it's bilingual. Mm -hmm. So it leaves open that possibility of people being able to look at the original so I'm hoping that some colleagues will adopt the book um, or at least use sections of it to introduce this really wonderful poet to students. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that this book will become some sort of a uh, part of uh, a literary course or some translation course as well. But maybe uh, it um, can also be included in some interdisciplinary courses like Yulia uh, has mentioned, um, um, uh, Ukraine at Crossroads, and it can be history and literature. And uh, I think it really offers a very rich material for uh, the exploration of Ukraine 
Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, culture and history. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Milia and Yulia, for this conversation. And of course, thank you for bringing um, Halina Kruk's poetry to Anglophone audiences. And I do hope that you will translate more of Halina Kruk's poetry because I saw that she already posted a lot of new recent poems on Facebook. So maybe uh, in the near future, we'll see a new translation by you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today I spoke with Amelia Glaser and Yulia Ilchuk about Halina Kruk's book, A Crash Course and In Molotov Cocktails, published by Aerosmith uh, this spring. Thank you so much for listening to uh, Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.